Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today, overcast skies, hint of rain in the air, with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. It's good to be here, actually, David, because I, I do love this general area. I mean, it's a very distinct valley uh, hidden behind the helm. I know about Kendall, but this secret area just to the east of Kendall, I'm really unaware of. So it's been a lovely exploration for me. Yeah, so this is a landscape, isn't it? As you say, just uh, northeast of Kendall. Uh, it's, I would say it's more like southeast. <laughs> but let's say it's east of Kendall. Okay, there we go. New Hutton, Old Hutton, rolling hills, very pastoral, isn't it? This is dairy country and these big, lovely hedgerows everywhere. Coming along the lanes, driving south off the motorway, it was an absolute delight. It's like coming into a magical world. Yeah, and actually, people might know this. If you are on Twitter and you follow James from Strictly, well-known for his nature-friendly farming, we're his neck of the woods, and in fact, we are with his uncle today, Arthur Robinson, Mark. And the reason we're here to see and meet Arthur is why. Oh, uh, here's a man who's got a great handle on rock and geology, but... He puts his hands actually on the rock now in his retirement and loves building dry stone walls. Dry stone walls, a great heritage feature of this landscape, whether you're on the high fells, whether you're by the coast, whether you're in these rolling pastoral landscapes, they define Cumbria, don't they? This is an agricultural county and the walls and the hedgerows other boundaries. If you go to the Lake District, you think you're looking across an open landscape of wild hills, but even in the heart of the Lake District, you've got walls. So have you got any favourite walls, Mark? Well, when I go to Borrowdale and Wasdale, I just adore the accumulative areas of walling and mounds of walls that are dragged off the pastures. I love the wall from Mosdale, ahead of Wasdale, that goes straight up onto Red Pike. What the heck was that all about? That is phenomenal. Huge amount of effort's gone into building walls down the ages. It's just spellbinding. And one of the really famous ones is the one that goes up um, low pike, high pike, onto the Fairfield Horseshoe, isn't it? That's kind of very iconic Lakeland wall, that. But we're going to talk today, Mark, about the process of dry stone walling, about the geology of some of the stones that are used. Where did those stones come from? The kind of people who would do the dry stone walling all those centuries ago. What makes a great dry stone wall? But we'll also talk a little bit about the hedging, uh, about some of the field systems, some of the field names. I think both you and I love that, don't we? And we'll also talk about what drives somebody to put stone upon stone upon stone and create these sometimes genuinely beautiful boundaries. Uh, I can see Arthur, he's just over there uh, by the wall, actually, so let's go and meet Arthur.
made it into the field. Lovely setting. Hello, Arthur. It's wonderful of you to give us our time for Country Stride. Arthur, who are you and how long have you lived in this majestic setting? Well, uh, welcome, Mark. I'm Arthur Robinson and I'm one of the hundreds of Robinsons <laughs> around here. We date back from time immemorial. We know that my ancestors were, were here in the 1700s. I'm... Uh, not a farmer, mm -hmm. but my brother Henry uh, is a farmer and uh, we're actually now standing on his land which has been farmed by uh, my immediate family. I'm the fourth generation, uh, so it was my great-granddad in 1875 became tenant of this farm strictly. And as you can see, it's a landscape now of basically grazing and because we're near Kendal, about three miles east of Kendal, uh, we're in an undulating landscape which is mainly dairying and cattle, though some of the other farms are, are beef. And there is some uh, sheep farming as, as well. We have a few herdwicks here. Silaging has just finished yesterday. So they're carting in some of the bales uh, today at the moment, so we might just hear the, uh, the tractor. <laughs> we could also hear rooks. Oh, indeed, yes. Uh, have they got a heritage in this spot? They've been here for hundreds of uh, years, about 30 nests, and quite frankly, it's lovely to hear them. And if you listen carefully, you can hear the, the low note of the adults, and then the strange little higher notes of all the babies that are now wanting to be fed uh, in there. And as we walk along, we'll probably see the parents pecking in the fields and uh, getting whatever food they can find. This is such a magic place. I really would like to explore it a little bit. Where are you going to take us, Arthur? Well, this is a, a long, thin farm. So we're actually going to walk a mile to, first of all, uh, walls that I have built over the last two years. And then we will wander back by various walls, looking at features, and we'll see what we can see. Wow. But we will be nowhere near roads, so it's all foot slogging today. Oh, I love that. I think this is what listeners expect of Country Stride. They want to know that we're muddying our feet. <laughs> okay, well, we'll plod up this path, this track that's leading us south, I would say. South. This way. Would you guess it? The day has changed. We've done very well. We've brought an umbrella. And it has now come into play. <laughs> but nonetheless, we've come upon a really interesting spot. It's a very old wall. We've been walking beside this crumply old bellied out wall. <laughs> and we've come to a point where Arthur is working and he's setting out the foundations. I can see where beyond an A-frame, there is the basis of the wall that he's done already. Okay, Arthur, explain to me what's going on here. Would you like to tell me first, Mark? This yep. is a, uh, a little bit of description from you. Yep. How are the foundation stones arranged? Yeah, indeed. Well, you've got large stones forming the base 
on the outside, as it were, and there's some smaller stones in the middle, infill ones, uh, as the foundation, I presume, of the whole structure. So it's a, a good, solid base. Yeah, but a lot more complicated than that. Uh, the first thing we did, of course, was demolish the previous crumbling wall, then dug out all, all the rubble to make a trench. So we now have lots of very big and generally shapeless stones. There are even two that we had to move with the digger because we couldn't move them. But the thing you'll notice, Mark, is that the foundation stones have a long axis which goes into the wall on each side. They are not parallel to the outside of the wall. And there's a very good reason for that. One of the reasons that walls fall down, they might only last 200 years, but they fall down, and that's because the movement of the ground, uh, wetting and drying, heating and cooling, freezing and thawing, movement of the soil down slopes, actually causes the whole wall to move, and the foundation stones rotate. So if you put the stone with its long axis parallel to the wall, that's much easier for it to rotate than if the long axis is put into the wall. That's very important. Because of that orientation, these stones, as I said, are very big and they are very rough. The interior of the wall, you put in rubble that can't be used for anything else. Many wallers simply tip it in. But I don't do that. I lay each stone with its flattest part horizontal. And the reason for that is if you just tip the stone in, the stones go in in random orientations. And over the next 100, 200 years, all that movement of the ground will make the stones move. And you create holes inside the wall. And we're now looking uh, at the old wall and we can see big cavities in it where the stones have, have moved. It's a technical term for the various elements. You say the long stones pointing in to give that stability uh, and the infill stones. Is it a particular term you use? Yeah, the infill around here we simply call fillings but the Dry Stone Walling Association and wallers in the Lake District call them heartings. That would be the official technical term, at least for the northwest. I don't know what they call them down south. Now we've moved on to the bit of walling that you've uh, accomplished. You've got the bedding stones uh, we've just walked by, the fillings. We've bombed past that. Now we've got to a full height bit of wall. Now, what are we looking at now? The significant point is the golden rule of walling, which all wallers must observe, and that is one over two and two over one. In other words, like in brick houses, the stones overlap each other. Quite. Now, why is this called dry stone walling? No mortar. And how they stand up is because of this one over two and two over one, because the walls move up and down all the time, but that movement is taken up by the stones overlapping. That is a fundamental. And then the next thing is that the stones, I've walled them, so the flat face is on the outside, if indeed there is a flat face, yep. but 
you will notice that the top of each stone is farther into the wall than the bottom. Right. In other words, Tapish. the stones don't overhang with the top sticking out farther than the bottom. The reason is that provides a slope for rainwater to drain off the wall. Why? Because if you get water going into the wall and it freezes, ice expands by 9%, it separates uh, stones and so on and make, makes walls uh, come down faster. So when you see a rock face and you've got fissures... As freeze-thaw, absolutely correct, yeah. So we've now got our walling stones in, uh, but you'll notice that my wall has stones sticking out. What I understand as a through stone gives it a, another dimension of stability. Correct. These around here are called throughs and they go from one side of the wall to the other and their function is to bind the two sides of the wall uh, together. They're very, very important. So why don't we break these stones so that the ends of them are flush with the wall. Because you'll see they're every metre and they all stick out. Or well, most of them do. Well, two things I would think of. One is your style, but more important, it shows where they are. And neither is the correct answer. <laughs> no, the correct answer... I think I know. Is it to do with sheep? No. Um, I don't know. The reason is that these stones, if you hammer them, when you hammer stones, they never break how you want them to. So if you try to shorten these throughs to make them flush, the odds are You'd break, that it breaks in the wrong place and then the stone is too short and you have to throw it away. So you don't want to do that. Fabulous. Actually, this is so obvious. There is a related reason which isn't important at all. Cows absolutely love to have a good scratch yes. along a through. So you'll see that we have two lines of throughs here. Yes. The bottom line of throughs is a third of the way up. The second line of throughs is two thirds of the way up. The wall to the bottom of cams here is 42 inches. Uh, but what are cams, Mark? Yes, well, they are distinctly different stones. They're much bigger or irregular, crooked to the angle of the bedding plane of the, uh, the courses of the wall. Uh, you don't put throughs on the top, you put cams on the top. Uh, in other parts of uh, England, cams are called copes or coping stones. They are basically big stones that you put on top of the wall to go from one side of the wall to the other. They act like mini throughs, but they're right on the uh, top. And of course you've got, the, the wall itself is tapered, like the A-frame that you have there. So it's, it's wider at the bottom, narrower at the top, allowing you to put single stone as a cam. Correct. Uh, the tapering, the correct term is, there is a batter. The batter is the angle between vertical and the surface of the, of the wall. So your next question, Mark, is why do these cams slope? Now they slope at the opposite angle to the hill slope. So they're sloping down 
into the hill. If the cams were sloping the same way as the hill slope, if a stone is knocked off downslope of that cam, that cam would then slide down the slope. However, when the cam is sloping the opposite way to the hill slope, if the cam below it gets knocked off, the stone will simply fall flat onto the wall and won't slide down. It compensates. It compensates and it keeps all the other cams on. If it was the other way around, one would slide off, then the next one, the next one. So on the very steep slopes in the Lake District, on the fells, they really have to be uh, like this to last 100 years. I'm absolutely riveted by what I'm looking at. And I, actually looking back at the old wall, which is so decrepit, it hasn't got the same structure now. Because I don't know how it's 300 years old, is it? It could well be at least 300 years old, though it might have been mended in places. What happens over time is that the movement of the ground uh, causes the base of the wall to widen out. The weight of the stone above it pushes it out. Now you'll, you'll see in that wall there are no throughs. And the reason for that is the local geology just wasn't suitable. The two sides haven't been bound together. So it's only lasted 300 years, which is, you know, pretty poor really, isn't it? You look around, well, I could say the Lake District, uh, there is obviously different styles represented by the different rocks in the walling techniques. Where the limestone is dominant, you get a wall similar to this, do you? Mm. Uh, yeah, uh, most of the walls in the county are built like this one, though mostly by random walling rather than the coarse walling that I do. Crucial thing is that the rocks are bedded. In other words, they are sedimentary. In other words, they are layered type of, of rocks. And you get that on, on limestone, uh, sandstone as up around uh, Penrith. There isn't actually all that much variety in the Lake District in terms of how the wall is built. But other features are interesting. Now, Wasdale is really, really interesting I because, that, yes. yeah, there, the walls are generally as they are around here, but then you have enormous thicknesses at corners. Yes. That stone is from the fields and they had to put it somewhere, so they made the walls wide and they filled up corners and so on. But the, the stone is, is generally fluvioglacial. In other words, it was deposited as the glaciers melted and as snow melted during the periglacial period, washed the stones off the fells around because there was very little vegetation to keep it there, dumped it all in the bottoms of the valleys and the farmers have then uh, improved the land by taking the stone away. They didn't have to dig it up, it was just palpably there. It's, it's actually there, yeah. A shap has granite, uh, but there, there aren't really any walls because that's on common land. If you go farther afield to say Galloway, yep. now Galloway has lots of granite. Big stones. Big stones, they really are big and they tend to be shapeless. And there, 
a lot of the walls are simply one stone thick. And that's because they're so enormous that they simply pile one on top of the other and then in the gaps between they put little stones to make them stable. Quite an achievement to actually do it. It is. And they were so heavy. So heavy, yeah, of course they use machinery nowadays. You'll see rather the same uh, around the Cheviot granite in, in northern Northumberland. However, down in Cornwall and Devon, there the walls are really very different because they're a sort of cross between a wall and the hedge. And they use a technique which is used here. Now, dikes in Lincolnshire and down there are ditches to take water away. But up in the Lake District here, dikes are low embankments on which hedges grow. Uh, they're on low embankments to keep them out of water in, in wet areas. I've seen them at some bees. Have you? Yes. What you do with those, you get big stones, boulders, and you actually put earth between to make them stable. And what then happens is grass grows and helps to bind the soil. The soil doesn't get washed out, you see, and helps to bind the, the stones together. But those sorts of dikes tend to be only, oh, a yard perhaps five feet at the very, very most, and they have quite a strong batter uh, on them. Well, that's absolutely fabulous there, Arthur. I've got a real grasp of it, and I wish listeners were here to see the handsome work you're doing by comparison with the ragged old tumbly wall there. Yours, I think, will be here for 500 years. <laughs> Let's hope so. <laughs> Well, we've come upon the first actual feature in the wall. We've got the various elements of the actual structure, but there's what I would call a hog hole with a slate along the top of it. It's about two feet high. I'm very old money on lengths. So what is a hog hole? Yeah, that's a local term, Mark. Uh, I think down south they call them smoot holes. I don't understand why. Uh, but we call them hog holes. You've got to be clear on what... Hog means here. We're not talking about the American sense of a hog being a pig. We're talking about an H O double G, which is an abbreviation of hoggart, uh, which of course is a, a sheep that is older than a lamb, but has not yet produced a lamb. In other words, a sort of one year old sheep. In days gone by, the farmers would have their cattle and horses in a field, but during winter time, they would allow the sheep to wander from field to field grazing. So hog holes are two, at most three feet high. They go right through the wall. They are the width of a sheep to allow the hogs to go from field to field. I don't understand why they allowed the sheep to roam and the, the cattle and horses not to, but hog holes are extremely common around here but of course they don't have them through hedges they only have them in walls so again i don't understand it yeah a mystery i wonder if any listeners have an answer to that that system isn't used now so virtually all hog holes are blocked up but where i've been rebuilding walls we have deliberately renewed them and we've bought in big lintels so that they will be there for a long time. Now, why have we done it? Because this is a nature-friendly farm. I have literally seen hares, rabbits, 
a roe deer fawn, wow. and even a stoat right. run through these. In other words, we are providing them for the wildlife to go from field to, to field. We have, uh, I know of smoots, but you mentioned it earlier, as being a, a much lower feature, and it's where they set a trap to catch rabbits. It's a way of getting food for the farmer or the workers. Oh, they have some of those at uh, Sizer Castle in, in the grounds. Lake District is smothered in walls and it's very labour-intensive. So who are the poor folks who did this job? Do they live on the fells and, and operate as teams? It depends at what age you're talking about. Where we are standing now is ancient cultivated land. So the people that built these walls were probably the local farmers. Who they were is, is lost in the mist of time. By the late 1700s, there were vast areas of, of Britain, and particularly in Cumbria, uh, which were still common land. During the Napoleonic Wars, the price of wheat in particular shot up many times. People were starving. Farmers wanted to produce more. They wanted to produce better animals and so on, but they couldn't. The animals bred indiscriminately on, on the commons. Other people's stock came and, and ate anything because there were no fences. By the 1840s, the uh, Parliament had passed an Enabling Act to uh, enable enclosure awards to be made more easily and cheaply. And that's when the rest of the commons here were enclosed. Enclosure means that the common was divided up into parcels of land that were owned by the farmers. The farmers that were able to do this were the ones that had a right, or called a stint, to graze a certain number of animals on the common land. Many farmers did not have that right, and therefore they, although they kept their animals on the common land, because it was common land, they didn't have the legal right. And therefore, a lot of them simply were deprived of their land, and they migrated to the towns or they were employed by the farmers that did get land to build walls. The walls were laid out by surveyors, and you see on this enclosed land that the walls are straight, and the fields are rectangular. The roads that were made across this common land have wide verges, and they are straight because they were made by surveyors. So there were teams of what you might call otherwise unemployed uh, ex-farmers who helped to build the walls. The enclosure awards generally demanded that the boundary walls between owners were built within about six months because the land had to be ready for the next year's uh, farming. The dividing walls within each allotment was up to the uh, owners uh, to build. Quite often they used their own family to build them. Did they move the stone around on carts or on panniers on ponies? Ah, uh, around here I would imagine it was probably by carts. 
but certainly in the Lake District, you see holes next to walls. Remember, these walls were built in Victorian times. Holes called borrow pits where stone was quarried out to make the walls. And if you look at those walls, you'll generally find that the stones have very sharp edges because they've been quarried. Because it's steep land, they used sledges and they always transported the stone down the hill for rather obvious reasons. But because in some areas it took so long to walk from the valley bottoms up to the uh, fells where they were building the walls, quite often they actually lived up on the fells in all weathers because they were paid piecework, of course, and they were only paid by the, the amount of walling that they could do. Hard life, a hard life. Well, we'll head off and see. There must be other features, uh, Arthur. Well, we trekked across a, a few fields, uh, past bits of wall, but largely pasture fields uh, of various sorts. Now, we've come across to a particular wall. We're looking at the north-south horizon of the helm. Uh, and in front of me is a wall with some foxgloves growing. They're not in flower yet. The actual wall itself, this is a bit of your handiwork, I gather. Very unusual to my eyes, because although the stones are quite smallish, they are multicoloured, I would say. Uh, what does that betray? Lots of different rock types. Oh, so here's a challenge for you. Well, OK, what's my challenge? So See if you can uh, identify six stones that are different geology. Right, now I'll start off with uh, one of the larger stones, two-thirds of the way up the wall. It's angular, it's dark grey, it's what I would always think is some kind of slate stone or mudstone or something of that sort. So on earth that one there, Arthur? That's Coniston Slate. And that's the stone that we bring in from Hodge Close Quarry. You've got one, right. five to go. Well, there's some very beckstonish, roundish form. It's a lighter grey. That's the very common stone, which is the rock underneath us now, and you'll see it everywhere. It's a greyish stone. Mm -hmm. There's one that's very reddish tone there, a flattish stone. God, this me, that's hematite. It's ironstone in some way, is that? What is it? Very good. Let, let's go through these rock types in order and just a few minutes say how they were formed. We'll start with the oldest. Um, geological time is divided up into periods. So we're here looking at uh, rocks that date from uh, about uh, 450 million years up to about 350 million years. So some of the stones in this wall are 100 million years older than others. Hard to believe. So the oldest rocks you probably won't uh, recognised as being spectacular, but these are uh, dark, very heavy stones, and this is lava from um, what's called the Ordovician period, so this is about 470 million years old, something like that, and this rock has come out of the Lake District, so it must have come via the glaciers. Borodale Volcanic Series is the group 
that it's um, a member of. Then the next in age is Coniston Slate. These are the stones that we've brought in. It's the typical Lake District green slate and it shatters along really nice uh, lines and that's because it's made in a mountain chain. The one we are looking at is also coated with red, mm, very which, distinctive. which is actually hematite. Mm. Uh, you're absolutely right. And then the third one is the stone uh, which forms most of this area. This is the grey sandstone. Uh, the local farmers call it blue granite, but it's not granite and it's not blue. So this is sandstone, but a very, very hard sandstone. Very dense. Uh, very dense. It's so hard that it's actually got quarries in it to make roadstone for, for motorways and, and so on. Strictly, it's called sandstone from the Kendall group of rocks from the Windermere supergroup, and it forms the bedrock of most of this area uh, east of Kendall. Then above that is this red rock, which you quite rightly said has iron oxide in it, and it's actually just a little bit uh, younger than the previous uh, rock. So it's the top of the Silurian, which is called the Predoli. This is about 420 million years old, 410, something like that. So that's number four. And then number five, this is Shap granite. And you must have been up the A6. The Shap granite quarry, you know, is very small, mm. but uh, because the glaciers passed over it, this very distinctive rock is found throughout the north of England. It's really obvious because it has great big pink crystals in it uh, called Orthoclase feldspar and lots of other crystals, quartz and biotite and, and various other minerals. You see um, erratics of it. This is a glacial erratic. And then finally, uh, rock number six is Carboniferous limestone. This, limestone. The mountain limestone. And if you look at some of it, what do you see in here, Mark? Creatures. Fossils. <laughs> Fossils. Indeed, Creatures yes. Small and small. Yes, and you see little circles here. Yeah. And these yes. little circles are, are pieces of crinoid. Crinoids. Yeah, crinoids oh, were yeah. animals, but they looked like sea lilies. They had a stem and then they had a a body and arms waving around to, to fill to feed. And then you also see bits of coral. Yes. Uh, little bits of broken shell. And that indeed is a bit of broken shell, probably from a, an animal called a brachiopod, or it might be a lamellibranch, which is a sort of mussel type creature. So what we're looking at are very tiny fossils. Some are like half an inch wide. It's, it's speckled with all these little creatures. These are all shells of animals that have then been broken up by the very strong currents in, ah, the, in the shallow seas. Right. Uh, think Bahamas banks and, and so on. Uh, in other words, hot tropical climate where all these animals lived in the, in the shallow sea. Gosh, so when that limestone was laid down, that ground was somewhere near the, near the equator, down that way. Absolutely correct shallow seas, lots of coral 
and lots of wildlife and that formed the limestone uh, that we can see here. So these stones, where do they come from? Some of these stones are rounded and that shows that most of the stone here has actually been dug out of the fields. The soil here is very stony mm -hmm. and so they had to get rid of the, the stone somehow. Why not make it into walls? So that's what the rounding is. So underneath us is the sandstones which we mentioned before. The Coniston slate we have brought in to make these walls so that they're very recent. The Bordel Volcanic series and the Sharp Granite were brought here by the glaciers. The last glaciation, the peak of it was 30,000 years ago and it was finished 20,000 years ago. The limestone, well the nearest outcrop of that is just the other side of Kendall and Scout Scar and so on. Of course there are quarries there. So how this limestone actually got here, it might have been brought with buildings and then buildings have been demolished and the stone has simply been used. Quite often along some of these walls I've, I've found mortar attached to the limestone. So it, it might have come from that. Though of course it could also have been brought by the, the glaciers as well. There is a bit of limestone to the north. And which direction do the glaciers move in this area? They, the glaciers here moved from the north to the south. They radiated from the centre of the Lake District, but they were changed in direction slightly by the valleys. So there was a big glacier coming down the uh, Kent Valley out of uh, Long Sledland and so on. But there was also a glacier that came through the Teeby Gorge, went sort of eastwards from the Lake District and then southwards through the Teeby Gorge and then bizarrely along the Minton Sprint uh, Valley, Grairig and so on, and then uh, some of it turned again to come southwards through the eastern part of this parish. What we see today of the, of the rivers, the flow like of the Eden going north and the Kent going south as a clue to the glacier situations. Uh, that's right, the valleys were there beforehand because they are all drained from a dome that had formed over the Lake District. The valleys were there and then the, the glaciers uh, moved down those valleys. They, they, the glaciers played into them. So that's yeah. a really interesting thing because I've never thought about that. The fact that the actual valleys predate all that action and were part of a dome. Yeah, and please remember that dome was there probably about 60 million years ago. Most people think of the glaciation but in fact there have been 20 glaciations and where we are at this actual point, the last glacier ended about 20,000 years ago. But if you go to Windermere, or I should really say Dunmill Race, there was a mini glaciation called the Windermere Re-Advance, uh, which was only 10,000 years ago. Well, we've covered the uh, anatomy the, of the individual stones. We'll move on to another walling section, I think, away from this spot. We've actually paced a little more than a hundred yards from where we were standing and I can look down towards Falton Fell in the distance and Scout Hill. 
and the Howgills. Is that the Howgills? Yeah, I suppose it is, something like that. Middleton Fell. Those are the Middleton. Ah, uh, Barben Fells, yeah. But anyway, in the foreground, nearer, much nearer, is a quite a low undulating landscape of fields. What is eye-catching for me is that there are hedges all over the place, but there are also walls in some areas. Why are the walls there and why are just hedges in some other parts? Sometimes it was simply what a farmer wanted to do. Did he want to build a wall or did he want to uh, plant a hedge? However, there is a pattern if we look at this and you'll notice Mm -hmm. that in this particular area, which perhaps is unusual for um, Cumbria, the walls are in the low areas. Absolutely. Where it's flat and the hedges are on the hills. Whereas in the Lake District... Quite the reverse. You f- exactly. You find the, the hedges down in the bottoms of the valleys and the walls up on, on the fells. But it's all related to geomorphology. The glaciers came from the north down to the south here. But what they were coming through was a very broad valley between the helm and the ridge, which is formed by Falton Fell... Scout Hill, uh, going up to Rowan Edge and Junction uh, 37 on, on the motorway. It was a very broad valley. And the glacier scraped away everything in the bottom of the valley. So in this particular valley, there is actually rock extremely near the surface. And as we were walking along before... I asked you yes. how you felt about your legs going up and down, and oh. you said it was all bumpy and horrible. Yeah, I thought it was reason for or something or other. But That's it. right, but it's basically because there is solid rock just a few inches down, and in some of the fields a bit farther down, you actually have uh, expanses of solid rock actually poking through the, through the grass. Difficult for ploughing. Impossible for ploughing, in fact. And that's why some of the fields have got lots of gorse in them because they simply cannot and never have been uh, ploughed. Now, where the soil is very stony and they did plough, they used the stone. Well, they had to get rid of it somehow to plant their crops. So they used it for building the walls. And we've already referred to the fact that some of the stones, in fact, quite a lot of them, have got rounded corners. But the ones that have been quarried have got very sharp edges, so it's easy to tell which are which. So there we are, we've got the walls down in the valley bottom where there's little uh, soil, or if there is soil, they had to give up ploughing. They couldn't plough it. Meanwhile, between these low areas, we've got the great long drumlins, and these are accumulations of material that were deposited by the glaciers. The soil is thick there. So that's why they were able to plant uh, hedges and they thrive in that sort of environment. Now, if you think of walls, they really are labour-intensive, but they last a long time. They should certainly last 100 years. Really, they should be lasting 200 years or even longer with repairs uh, done uh, over over time. Now hedges, because they keep growing, you have to keep laying them. On this particular farm, they are laid every 20 to 25 years, depending on how well they've grown. So you've got to keep at it. 
the benefit was that in laying them you cut out a lot of wood which you can then use for firewood and in those days there was no no peat around here no coal so they did rely on wood so they did prefer hedging if possible certainly it where it was possible down here the whips to grow the hedges uh, where did they source those uh, most of them were naturally seeded and, and germinated in the woods and they would simply go and dig them out of the, the woods. Uh, by Victorian times there were nurseries to grow them. However, you might have heard of the saying that each species in a hedge represents 100 years. Obviously a hedge with 10 species is a very old hedge. That has been proved to be wrong simply because it assumed that only one species was planted. In fact, it wasn't. They would dig out saplings from woods of whatever they could find. There is also a theory that in the most ancient hedges, they were simply the parts of a wood that were not cut down, whereas the rest of the wood was cut down to make a field. So they simply survived as ancient hedges. Gosh, it's a wonderful setting, Arthur. I just love just standing, listening to the birds. I just heard two curlew just before I started recording then. Fabulous. This is a genuinely tranquil, magical corner of Cumbria. Gosh, it's those birds. Don't want to break it, but anyway... We're by a wall here, Arthur, uh, and in fact all around us are wonderful green fields. This is pastoral Cumbria, pastoral England, with the bird song and everything about it is purely magical. Now, the fields, now, each one has uh, an OS number, I know that, to distinguish it. But uh, colloquially and in vernacular, there are terms for each one. So the farmer knows himself which field he's talking about when he's telling his labourers to go out and mow that field or that field or put the cattle out here or there. Uh, field names are really interesting. Every field has a name. It all depends on whether it's a family farm or not and, and history. Uh, you mentioned the Ordnance Survey, but before the Ordnance Survey uh, and numbering of fields, there had to be some means of knowing what field was where. And in the Corn Law maps, for instance, you uh, get the names of the fields in the 1830s around here. So this particular field is called Hag. These names from those times are generally very ancient and we're really talking Anglo-Saxon. So hag uh, referred to an area of brush and scrub and it, it's used for other fields and even a farm in this local area. Now when you're talking about brushwood you're talking about a field that wasn't a field at that time. So you're actually talking very many hundreds of years Anglo-Saxon 
Next door to us in the neighbour's field is Briams. Briams is probably another word for brushwood and so on, as in a corruption of broom. It was also a stony field, so it probably also meant rough ground. The next field is called Borrams. Similarly, the field in, in a, just over the hedge from where we are, its Cornlaw name was Collygarth, but it's now called Bottomfields over Blees. The names depend on history, how old they are, descriptive features, whether the farmer wants to keep the name, and, and so on. Fabulous, because I remember on the farm I had, we had uh, Peckard Field and Top Freddies and Bottom Freddies, because a chap called Freddie West milked a cow and delivered milk to the local village. We have similar field names here. There's a field called Greggy's. It's called Greggy's because it was bought from Mr... Greg. Greg, got it. <laughs> There's another field that was uh, bought in uh, 2018 called Adam's Field. The great passion you have for walls, and we've been looking at them and admiring them and considering them, where does it have its roots? What an interesting question. Without being silly, it might even be in my genes, because, of course, uh, the preceding generations on, on the farm have, have always had to build walls. My uh, uncle was what's called a metal waller. In other words, in walling competitions, he won medals. And my uncle, who died just a few years ago at uh, 101, was still walling when he was way past uh, 80. Um, why do I do it? I'm always up early, half past five. I'm down walling around 7am. Do about five hours of walling every day. Gets me out of the house. And what more could you want than to come out in the early morning, sun shining, birds singing their little hearts out, deer in the field, hares, cock pheasant fluffing up his feathers and shouting at us because his, his two ladies are there and he wants to scare off the neighbouring uh, cock pheasant. But there's also the joy, the satisfaction of building a wall and then, yeah, I did that. How did I spend so many hours doing that? Time when you're walling, time just flies by. Five hours is, is nothing. Yeah, it's, it's the job satisfaction and the job, job well done, I think, that is the important uh, thing. It's not just the functional bit of putting up a wall to keep stock from uh, trespassing. There's actually an aesthetic element to it. You can look at a wall, you can see it structurally from the engineering um, viewpoint, but you can look at it and, well, with the eyes of think, that really looks nice, some sort of aesthetic uh, sense. It's the artist in you, oh. and it's this sense of long-term. Seldom do we have a product that actually enhances the setting we live in for the next generation. And many generations to come, to be honest. Uh, walling is a heritage skill that mechanisation will never take over. So it's something that should be 
should be kept. And the walls, quite frankly, should be kept from the nature point of view, as well as the heritage sense. They are a different habitat from hedges and woods and so on, but they are a haven for frogs, toads, invertebrates like uh, wood lice, millipedes by the score, mouse nests, as well as human heritage, broken clay pipes, old horseshoes, old bits of farm machinery and, and so on. And can you tell us something about the stewardship scheme, uh, the financing of it? Uh, your listeners might be aware that the uh, basic farm payments uh, which farmers have been receiving have been based on acreage. Uh, Michael Gove produced the saying, public money for public goods. In other words, generally things to do with the uh, environment. This is really going to kick in from uh, 2024 onwards. So, for instance, the rebuilding of walls that we've just been looking at are one of the aspects that farmers can uh, do. They can apply to the government to have a contract, mid-tier or higher tier, it's all arranged according to uh, tiers, to rebuild walls, for instance, that are, that are crumbling. Uh, there are problems with it, though. At the moment, the payment is only £25 a metre. Now, that would be OK down in the south of England, where the uh, sedimentary rocks are basically like books, and uh, a commercial waller will be able to rebuild many metres of wall each day. But up here, where the stones are much more difficult, £25 isn't enough. Rebuilding wall gaps is generally £40 a metre, £50 a metre. Uh, however, to rebuild a wall, particularly with difficult stones, the commercial rates would be about £70 a metre. If you have hundreds of metres to rebuild, as on this farm where the total uh, will be about 780, uh, multiply that by 70 and you'll see what sort of figure uh, would be necessary it's possible here because basically I don't want payment. I do it as a hobby and I enjoy it. And I don't have to get the money to keep my family uh, alive. But it is a problem that I'm sure the, the government will need to uh, sort out. Which leads me on to that logical thing. You've been doing it I don't know how long, but how many miles or distance have you covered? I only really started uh, after I uh, retired in 2007. I've done in total to date 351 metres and I've only got about 430 metres to go over the next two and a half years. So I, I'll be a bit greyer by the time I finish. Journey's end, we've sought cover, Mark. It was on and off the rain, wasn't it? But not too dreadful, and uh, we've learnt a lot. 
Oh, indeed, I've learned all sorts of little detail that has eluded me down the years. Uh, this is what you learn from somebody who's handling it all the time. A, about the actual geology of the rocks that I wasn't quite tuned into. The techniques in walling, that's really fascinating. Uh, the way the water is encouraged to drain off a wall, how the cam stones are angled against the slope. The basic feel of the rocks and the way that they're a rebuilding of an old wall. Very interesting, that. Right, our housekeeping. We are on episode number... 82. For 81 previous episodes, www.countrystride.co.uk. Uh, we're on social media, Mark. Facebook and Twitter at Countrystride One. If you'd like to support us, if you like what we do, there are three ways that you can do that. First and foremost, please do recommend us to your family and friends. The more listeners we have, the higher we notch up the algorithms, which is uh, good news for all kinds of reasons. Secondly, you can buy our guidebooks. There's a, a number in our boutique collection now of guidebooks, all with a country stride flavour to them. Uh, so you'll be able to learn country stride facts as you go for walks around Threlkeld and around Oldswater. Again, you can find them at www.countrystride.co.uk. Finally, we have a Patreon account, so for as little as £2 a month, you can support us and the podcast. And we've got a few thank yous this fortnight. We'd like to say thank you to Anne Clark, Anne, whose um, husband we walk with way back on episode number two. So thank you, Anne. I know that you tune in regularly. Lindsay Ward and then Teresa Williams. And Teresa Williams sends this uh, lovely message, which I will read out. Hi, Mark and David. I'm one of the trainee Blue Badge Tourist Guides for Cumbria who's been using your podcast as inspiration and education for the past eight months. My dear friend, Fiona Steggles Elliott, was a big fan and a champion of the show to whomever would listen. We lost Fiona a few weeks ago due to complications from COVID. It is a huge loss to our small group, but on a much bigger scale to the future of Cumbrian tourism, as she would have been a wonderful guide and was a real tour de force in getting things moving and connecting people. I would like to make a donation to Country Stride in her memory, as I think she would appreciate keeping you guys in coffee for a couple of episodes. Well, thank you very much for the message, uh, Teresa. Uh, and with thoughts for all of you, the Blue Badge Tourist Guides for Cumbria. That's us coming to the end of the podcast today. Uh, Mark, we have in the next few weeks... Explore the Isaac's Tea Trail, I really seem uh, to remember. Yes. Absolutely. Um, the uh, North Pennines. North Pennines from Alston. Uh, we might be going to Kirby Lonsdale. Well, I think we are going to Kirby Lonsdale. Yeah. Um, and we've got another one Beatrix yeah. Potter oh magic Beatrix Potter we keep promising it but it's definitely coming well that's us signing off then as the uh, evening draws in and as the rain starts picking up now we're saying goodbye and thank you for joining us on Country Street.